Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Lynn Hilton, it's officially December, so surely it's okay to have the Christmas songs on now, right? Bah humbug, so, but yes, if we're going to have to, then now we should. <laughs> Do you don't have a favourite Christmas song? I don't mind them, you know, the traditional ones, but yeah, it's not a big part of my growing up. I mean, obviously I used to sing them for choirs and at gigs and maybe it was because I preferred singing harmony and not the melody. I don't really know why I'm trying to advocate for them because they make me cry. But sentimental and positive emotional reasons as opposed to because it's annoying you. I find them a little bit apocalyptic. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, the jolly ones are all right. But something like somewhere in my memory, I just find that really quite depressing. So, you know, Merry Christmas. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) But if you had to pick a Christmas song, what would it be? All right. So it's not a traditional carol. Uh, It's a song by Tim Minchin called White Wine in the Sun. Okay, okay. And that sums up Christmas for me, you know, sitting around outside in the sun. It's usually hot. Well, not usually. It's always hot at uh, Christmas time in in Australia. Often we will have either been to the beach in the morning or going to the beach in the evening and somewhere along the line we'll be sitting and drinking white wine. The old Chardonnay or Cardonnay, as Kim says. Yeah. So that, and that will make me cry, that song. Yeah. Okay. Well, would it be correct to say that if someone was going to be singing that song around you, that you'd quite like it to be in tune or have pitch accuracy? Yes. And why do you say that, Alexa? (laughs) Well, just so happens to be the topic of discussion today, Lynn. So I thought I'd, you know, segue in there. Beautifully done. (laughs) So what are some of the reasons why a singer might struggle with pitch accuracy? There's quite a few reasons. Um, I really object to the fact that as soon as someone has demonstrates they can't sing in tune, that they're suddenly labelled tone deaf, and I'm, I'm expecting we'll talk about that later. But the very simple one is that maybe they've not had any experience singing along in tune or being corrected when they haven't been singing in tune. You know, there are people who seem to be born with a more musical ear and some who struggle with it. And a good example of that is me versus my dad. (laughs) Somehow was born with a musical ear. He did not have a musical ear. And I don't know if there's any DNA involved or not, It does seem to happen that there are people who find singing in tune a lot easier than others, but it doesn't mean you can't learn it. So I think the first thing is exposure. They may not have been exposed to that concept. Another thing which I like to talk about is pitch disorientation. So maybe they were exposed to it, but nobody explained to them that note you're singing is higher than the note that I'm I'm playing. Uh, Or if you just slide up a little bit, you'll get to that note or slide down and so start to orientate people into singing the accurate pitch. So that's pitch disorientation to me. Obviously, if someone's got a hearing problem, 
they may not be fully aware of it. Maybe they've lost or not had certain frequencies in their hearing, so they might not get all of that information. Having said that, I know of at least three singers who have um, either totally deaf or partially significantly deaf. So that's an interesting, I don't know if we'll talk about that today, but it just demonstrates that actually hearing may not necessarily be necessary for someone to sing in tune. Yeah, so there's some of the reasons. Have you got some others that you can come up with? Not being able to hear yourself properly when we're singing, um, whether that's due to the physical space we're in or how we're actually hearing ourselves when we're singing out loud. And that is quite interesting because I definitely find that if I'm, if I'm in a bigger space and the sound is kind of, you know, being dissipated more, I find it harder to be accurate or find the pitch. And that's why a lot of people, you know, will close their one ear so they can hear it internally. Yeah. And of course, it might not be a pitch problem in itself, but it might be the product of a technical issue that's going on. Yes, absolutely. So it's very common for the singer to go flat as they go through their transition if their larynx is coming up as well. So in that instance, our vocal folds, they need to elongate to get thinner, to get up to the upper registers. But if the larynx is preventing that from happening and the vocal folds are in the wrong position, then we're not going to get the correct frequency. So the vocal folds won't vibrate at the correct frequency for the pitch that we're singing. And quite often they'll under vibrate, which makes the pitch flat. There's also the opposite where you might blow too much air through to, and then it speeds up the frequency of the vocal fold vibration and now someone might be more sharp. Are there more characteristics to falling flat, like the larynx being too high, compared to going sharp where we might see a tendency to push more airflow? I've not thought of it that way. I definitely feel like that's what I'm correcting more than more I'm correcting the technical aspect of flatness more than I am sharpness. And I think also it's things like your energy. So I think a lot of singers notice that they go flat when their energy is low. Mm. Uh, or, for instance, for me, I don't know what your experience is, but when I was premenstrual, my vocal folds were swollen. I always went flat and I could hear it. I just couldn't adjust it. And back then I didn't have the technique either to help me compensate for that. So all I knew was that for some reason I'm singing flat and I can hear it, but I just can't do anything about it. But nowadays I know, well, actually, if I do a little bit of massage, do certain kind of warm-ups, and then also compensate internally to sing slightly what I perceive like might be sharper, then I'll be more accurate. Yeah. Mm. And I've noticed that since my voice has changed, you know, now sort of past menopause, that I sing flatter now. But I think that's also in part because I'm not utilising my voice in that way as much as I used to. By the way, listeners, if you want to find out more on premenstrual voice syndrome or the menopause, we have some great resources on our blog and in the rest of the podcast. So check those out. We'll pop them in the show notes. Can we talk a little bit more about amusia or tone deafness as we referenced earlier on? What are we actually talking about there? And, and do we have it as singers? I would say that as singers, probably not, <laughs> because it's actually a clinical cognitive impairment. So 
the literature is anything from less than four to less than five percent of the population actually suffer from amusia. And this means that the brain just can't uh, process musical sounds and can't make sense of them. And so obviously if you've got a row of different pictures, the, the person listening who has amusia may not hear that they're different or if they're different may not be able to discern one's higher than the other or lower than the other and then certainly not be able to, to be able to reproduce that in their own voice. Yes, so amusia in itself, which is really the uh, pure form of what tone deafness is, is really a very low percentage of the population. And I would say that for the majority of those kind of people, they wouldn't come into singing anyway. They wouldn't Mm. come in and have a singing lesson. They might occasionally, but it's less likely that someone that you're, that's walking in through your studio door who can't sing in tune, it's less likely that they have amusia than that they're either pitch disorientated or having technical issues that are causing them to be that way. How far above or below a note will we be before the brain detects a pitch inaccuracy? I think it depends on your training. There used to be a test online where you could actually test that out. I can't find it now. It's a real shame. Uh, and I got to, I think, a sort of an eighth, an eighth sharp or an eighth flat, and I could still hear it. But I would say that's because of my training. And I used to play guitar. And I think if you play those kind of instruments where you have to tune your instrument, you're probably more attuned to it. I would say most people can hear it by the time you're getting to a quarter to three quarters out of tune. Uh, I don't know what the there must be some research on it, I'm sure, but I, if, if I've read it, I've forgotten it. Um, but I would say, you know, by the time you get to a quarter difference, people can hear it. So the other thing is that they have done research that if you're playing a melody, even if the person doesn't know the melody, and you're playing and it's all sort of within tune, and then you play a segment of it that's incorrect notes, that even if people don't know the melody, they can discern that it's, you know, something's wrong with it. Mm. Um, so I think we can hear it a lot m- more than we realise. You know, I think a lot of people who deem themselves non-musical probably are more musical than they realise. Singers can be quite sensitive to the words flat and sharp. How can we communicate to those singers that we're working with or help them to discover themselves that there are some pitch inaccuracies that need to be addressed? Look, one of my favourite pet peeves is when people tell me that someone's pitchy because it doesn't mean anything. You know, it's like, what does that mean? Are they flat or sharp? And if they are flat or sharp, is it technical or is it perceptual? Um, Or, you know, is it physiological? Like I just said, you know, with my vocal folds being swollen when I was premenstrual, that was a physiological thing. So I definitely would say don't go around saying, oh, you're pitchy. The other thing is I feel like it's important to make it less personal as well and just talk about the voice. Did you notice that the pitch went flat here or the pitch was sharp here? Let's explore why that is. And I know I've sort of talked about that in the past. That's you know, a strategy for teaching, really, so that people don't associate being off pitch as a personal thing and and in 
and then interpret it as being whether or not they're good enough. Because mm. actually there are many great performers out there that sometimes sing out of tune for different reasons. But for some reason in the culture of singers, we've started to make or we've got this association of if your pitch is inaccurate, it means you're a bad singer. What? Mm. How did that happen? It's it's no different to an athlete. You know, they do that action millions of times and sometimes it's inaccurate no matter how much they practice. We sing certain melodies or notes millions of times in, you know, in a career. Sometimes they're going to go off. Mm. We're human. And I feel like we need to eliminate that from our culture. And also just instead of saying someone's going flat or sharp because it's not useful, all, all that is is a symptom of something else, mm. whether it's physiological, technical or emotional, just say, okay, that pitch is not accurate, let's see if we can figure out what the cause is. And, of course, a good teacher will be able to figure that out and help the student correct it. Challenges can arise when a singer is matching pitch with their tutor who is of opposite assigned sex to them. Mm. Why is that and how can we navigate that the best? Well, quite often the student just needs to be aware if they're the opposite sex that they're either going to be singing lower than the female teacher or higher than the male teacher. Um, so it's a matter of pointing that out. Uh, and then also starting to get them used to pitching from the piano and not from the voice. Sometimes I might actually play both octaves um, and that seems to correct the issue. I can't say I know exactly why somebody would sing a pitch lower. It's just that they might see your singing at the low part of your range and then think, oh, that must mean I have to be down there as well, as opposed to them recognising that you're singing the note that they need to sing. Because mm. tonally, obviously, sounds quite different, mm. even though it's the same pitch. It's not that dissimilar to sometimes people will will pick out the harmonic. They don't realise that's what they're doing and that's they're singing entirely the wrong note, it seems, until you realise that actually what they're doing is singing one of the harmonics. So it might be their perception of hearing and with time and repetition and practice, they'll start to be able to make that adjustment. The other thing is that you can always get someone in, you know, if you've got a male singer who's struggling with this and you've got another male singer student, you could bring that student in to demonstrate uh, or get them to demonstrate on a recording so that the new student can hear it and start to make that adjustment. But, yeah, it does happen. Mm. Uh, but usually if you point it out, do some exercises and, and help them understand, you know, when they're too high or too low, they'll start to make adjustments. How can a singing teacher or vocal coach determine whether the singer needs ear training or whether it's more efficient to go down the technical route? So the first thing is probably to eliminate the is there a technical issue? If the singer is going flat as they go through their transition, that's going to be a technical thing, especially if it happens every time. And if you're hearing other signs like the sound um, gets very wide and splatty or if they are bringing their mouth back really wide or you're noticing tension in their throat or their larynx popping up, uh, if you're getting those kind of 
things happening or the voice cracks or flips, you know there's a technical reason that's behind. So sort that out first. And then if the pitch gets more accurate, we know that that's the reason. The other time it can happen sometimes is if if someone's coming down lower into their range, they may go off pitch because their vocal folds aren't coming together enough to give an accurate pitch. So once you correct the vocal fold closure, if the pitch is now correct, then we know that that's more technical. For me, if it's more to do with what I call pitch disorientation, you know, somebody who's never really had much exposure to singing or music, I will play around with different types of exercises. For instance, I might find a note in their speaking range where they're already speaking and equate it to the notes that they're speaking. So if they're sitting around, you know, with a female voice around A3, B flat 3, A flat 3, I'll find a a word that they're saying and I'll say, repeat that word, repeat that word, and I'll play the note and I'll say, can you notice that there's a similarity? Can you hear that what you're saying is actually in tune with what I'm playing? And I'll just get them used to that. And if they can hear it, then I think I'm probably well on the way to assuming they don't have amusia. If they don't, I might. there's some other things you can do. Um, one time I remember I had a guitarist and I made that um, big sort of mistake of assuming because he was a musician, he could sing in tune. Anyway, he struggled and I was, first of all, quite shocked. I was like, how can you be so out of tune when you're listening to music so much? Anyway, so in the end, I, I tried all these different exercises, including the one I was just talking about, and it just wasn't working. And in the end, I said, just sing any note, any note. And then I found the note that he was singing. And then I said, now just go up. And then I found the next note. And I said, now come down. And then I found the next note. And then I plonked a note in there and I said, see if you can find that note, just slide into it and then slide into the next one. And eventually he started to get more accurate with the pitch. And then I was like, okay, this is not amusia. This is someone who is pitch disorientated. And that's why I coined that phrase, because I thought that's much more appropriate and, you know, less permanent as well. Uh, I feel like it's a little got a bit more of a positive connotation. So I was like, well, it's not that they're tone deaf or have amusia, it's that they're just they're disorientated because no one's no one's orientated them and they've never done enough of the practice, you know, to get orientated. You do need to identify because who knows, maybe one day someone does walk in the studio and that's actually more of a cognitive issue. Um, But for the most part, I'm going to start off by eliminating, is this a technical issue? And when I make sure that technically everything's correct and balanced, if that isn't correcting, then we'll go and do some other work. Announcement! Listeners, if you've been thinking about joining the BAST community by taking one of our courses, but you just don't know which is the best option for you, then why not book a free call with our very own Kimberly George, who has all the answers? Head over to basttraining.com forward slash book a call forward slash and click that big blue button to request your free Zoom chat. That's basttraining.com forward slash book a call forward slash and you can find that link in our show notes too. Now, where were we? Oh, oh.
So what other ear training exercises do you find are successful and what props or things can we pair with them to create a good exercise? Mm. So Ian Davidson, who's a wonderful teacher, did his research for his master's on singers who had been labelled as tone deaf and he introduced using the straw and they had a lot of success. So they would just start pitching and doing little melodies and scales and things, but just through the straw. Um, so I use that. Uh, there are lots of apps out there that will help people start to discern whether a pitch is higher or lower. So that's um, helping them with their ears. And then I usually record single pitches um, I don't worry about scales in the beginning. I'll just start with single pitches in the speaking range and they practice pitching too and, you know, practicing singing to those pitches at home because repetition is going to be really important here. Uh, you want to build the neural pathways because there's lots of things happening in the brain. You know, it's not just what you hear, it's then the recreating what you hear. And then there's the technical aspect of recreating. So there's quite a few things happening in the brain there. Um, so I'll, I'll get them to do different types of exercises, obviously within the lesson, record them, then repeat that as an exercise at home. I'll turn them on to some apps. I really love Sing and See or any kind of program software that helps you see pitch. Mm -hmm. So you might have a piano or notes down sort of on the side and then you'll see a line as you sing that will go up or down or in the middle and so for those people who are more visual they find it much easier to then correct themselves if they notice the line's going too high or if it's going too low so sing and see is one bit of software that can help with that and they have a version that's for teachers Instuno is an app as well where you can, as you sing into the app, it's green if you're on pitch and then it goes, I can't remember what the other colours are, I think it's red and yellow maybe, um, if you're sharp or flat. So those those are a couple of things that I use. What about you? I like the Vocal Pitch Monitor app, which is a graph, but it also shows you the pitch on the top. So we'll find the pitch on the piano like a, a G4 and then we'll sing G4. I'm not going to attempt it because I don't know what the pitch is, but you've got a handy piano there. Lynn, can you play mm -hmm. us a G4? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll do G4 and then we'll sing it and then look at the app. And if we're there, then we thumbs up. Or if we're below that, then we'll slide and glide around till we see the correct one flash up on the screen. Another thing that I really like to use is colour. And I don't know what the science is behind this. I'm pretty sure Claire Cannon has talked about this sometime in the past, um, but it could be a hardware booklet, you know, it from B&Q or whatever, where you get the different shades of paint or colored balls or colored ones, whatever that is for you, what you have access to, and assigning the pitch a different color, because it again gives a visual involved in the learning process and then pointing out at the different colors gets the kinesthetic action going as well. So I, I've found quite a lot of success using color. Yeah, actually, you just made me think of something else that I've done in the past, which is actually get the singer to come and sit at the piano, mm. play a note and then sing it. 
then play another note and sing it. And so they start to get that kinesthetic experience. Excuse me. So they start to get that kinesthetic experience as well. Mm. Uh, and then there was something else I was thinking about. Oh, and that is the ear training part of it, which is getting the singer to understand that there are higher notes. And, and I know Kaya talks about notes that are to the right and notes that are to the left, but that there are pitches that are sort of seem like they're higher and lower to others. And so playing them on the piano and saying, can you hear whether this is higher or lower? Uh, so they're starting to train their ear as well. If you have a singer who is experiencing some of these difficulties with pitch disorientation, how much of the lesson are you actually spending focused on pitch? Because if you're then doing technical exercises and you want to use octave arpeggios or the long scale, that's going to be quite a challenge for them to follow. So if you do venture elsewhere into technical parts or songs, what what do you use and how much how much time do you give to the actual mm. ear training? Well, to be honest, if I think back to in particular my most severe cases, we didn't do much in the way of technique. But I might do things like get them to do that on a lip trill. So if we've got two notes, so say for instance, we've got, you know, we've got to the place where we can sing uh, you know, a, a tone away. I might then convert that to one of my more technical or SOVT type exercises so that they're starting to get used to making pitch noises other than sort of ba or ma or la or whatever it is. And also with the idea that eventually, you know, when we can expand on that, now they've got some of the sounds and syllables that we'll be using in the context but it is difficult if someone has pitch disorientation because you know they're struggling so much with trying to find the pitch that they can't focus on the technical aspect mm. so it does have to be a priority to get them pitch orientated um, the other thing too is that i might move to something like a pentatonic melody there's something about, I, can't, I don't know the facts about this, but there's something about the pentatonic scale which is very primal and very familiar to us, which is why so many folk songs are on the pentatonics, around the pentatonic scale. And so I might use that um, to do some of the exercises on a melody that they might know, like mm. Auld Lang Syne, you know, for instance. Most people have heard that in the Western world uh, you know at least once a year um so i'll try and correlate it with so it also because you don't want it to be boring do you, you don't want it mm. just to be about the ear training and pitch training because they've come to you for a singing lesson haven't they so I tr i'll try that and i think it's also about managing our own expectations as this you know the singing teacher and to say actually i might be working on this for three months six months I remember, you know, one particular student that I had, she she struggled because there was an emotional component as well as, you know, the fact that she'd never sung, which was that her mother didn't think singing was appropriate thing to do. Mm. Um, so, but she really, really wanted to sing and she wanted to join a choir. And it took us 
a whole term, but she was actually able to, by the end of the term, to sing a very simple pentatonic folk song. And I found uh, I had to manage my expectations a lot and not get impatient and think that also that there was something wrong with me, that I must be, you know, a really bad teacher, that she can't sing a song. It's like, well, actually, this woman was, I think, in her 30s at the time, and she had had all those years of never singing, of being afraid of it because emotionally, you know, she she tied it into her mum's opinion about singing. Um, but also having this really secret, you know, longing to be able to sing. And so there was a lot tied into it. And the reality was that she was not wanting to go out and become a professional singer. And she had, you know, children, so she had other things and, and a job. So she wasn't probably able to put in as much time as um, might have been ideal. And so I had to be realistic about what she could manage and so that was great there was another student i had actually his dream was to be able to sing christmas songs in church without his sister telling him to shut up and we managed to do that but it took us a year mm. so he started sort of earlier in the year and he had weekly lessons he was very diligent and that was the test he went off to because he was from ireland he went off to ireland went to church, sang carols, came back, and I said, well, and he said, she said nothing. <laughs> I said, well, did she comment about the fact you were singing in tune? He, he said, no, but she didn't say I was singing out of tune and that I should shut up. So, <laughs> you know, it took a year, though. Success, yeah. Mm. Another thing is enhancing our inner hearing, so what's called audiation, and maybe giving focus to the vibrations that we feel or perceive in the body. I know working with a young student who had worn grommets for a while, this was a really good way in to sense where the frontal vibration was, whether there was any feeling in the chest, not that I necessarily bring attention to chest having to vibrate for chest voice, but we know that's where it comes from. Um, but yeah, being able to feel and follow the vibration. Also, so we don't get too obsessed with how it sounds, but also bringing in the inner experience as well. Mm. Well, this is, you know, there's this wonderful singer, Mandy Harvey, she's deaf. And admittedly, she, uh, her deafness started, I think when she was 17 or 18, but now she's profoundly deaf and she's still singing, performing. I think she was on America's Got Talent, not that, maybe a few years ago, but, She's out there um, singing professionally and she uses devices which show her pitch accuracy. Obviously, she's got a preconceived idea of what singing feels like, but she really did have to tune in to her body when she became deaf because she couldn't use her ears any longer. So she uses her eyes, you know, when she's practicing to see if she's on pitch and using, you know, like... Um, graphs that, that show when she's singing her pitch and then she also uses the vibration through the floor so she sings with bare feet. What about the opposite then? If we're purposefully wanting to sing out of tune for comedic effect or a song like When You Only Sing in F Sharp by Tim Minchin, Natalie Weiss also has some cool reels on her YouTube channel if you don't get too uncomfortable with the 
purposeful flatness and sharpness happening there. Like, what do we need to do to have that skill? That's so weird because it's something that I don't think I ever think about. If I want to sing out of tune, I just do. But I think mm. if you needed to practice it, then sliding between notes and finding where those middle points or out of tune, you know, where it's the most painful. So, you know, if you were um, going from a, you know, one note to another, so in a semitone. So, ah, and then, ah, you know, you find that, where's that, ah, that's sort of, I think, somewhere in between. Ah, ah, mm. until it's painful. I don't know. Mm. I've never had to practice it. I've just no felt it. Play in imitation and, and having fun with it also probably is a good way in. Well, the singing out of tune is actually finding totally different notes. I mean, that's the other thing is like, you know, you could actually sit down on the piano and figure out, well, what would be the worst notes to sing in this melody? Mm -hmm. And what would make it funny is that what makes it funny isn't singing totally out of tune the whole way through. It's but the bits. Bits yeah unexpected and also going low when it's supposed to go high or you know high when it's supposed to go low it's isn't that funny that's not something that i've ever really sat and thought about no it would be an interesting conversation to have with people who use that effect mm. but i don't think they'll think about it as much no and it kind of asks the question anyway like as an audience do you think that we're more forgiving for pitch inaccuracies in certain styles than others? Oh, absolutely. Mm. I I think, for instance, and I think it also depends a little bit on what you're used to hearing. So if I think about classical, the audiences are generally quite discerning and they will have often have seen that, sh that opera many times. Mm. So if somebody isn't in tune, they will be able to hear it because they've got a reference point. When it comes to a new piece, you don't know. I mean, like for instance, it happened in jazz. I can remember I sang, I decided to do a song um, and make it quite sort of uh, ambiguous quarterly. And I didn't, when I was practicing and rehearsing, I didn't have any problems coming in at the right note. But I hadn't accounted for the fact that when I was performing it, I would have nerves. And what happens to me when I go, when I get stage fright, or it's not fright, it's nervous, stage nervousness, is my hearing goes. Oh. And suddenly I can't hear, you know, unless it's really obvious. And I, what I should have done was set up with the keyboard player that he would play the note that I needed to sing. But, of course, he went straight into the arrangement as I'd written it. And I started singing knowing full well I was not in tune. And sorry, that I wasn't in the right key. It wasn't that I wasn't in tune, I just wasn't in the right key. And then it wasn't until later that I managed to find it and then slipped into the same key as the rest of the band were playing in. After the gig, I had this woman running up to me going, oh, my God, that was so brilliant. That was something that I was thinking of doing. And I was like, what was that? She said, when you were singing Summertime and, you know, they were playing in A minor and you came in an E. And I'm like, yeah, uh, that wasn't on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So you can get away with stuff like that probably in jazz and in pop, you know, I've noticed when I've gone to concerts that people are there for the experience of being with the artist and they're singing along and they're so wrapped in their own emotional journey of what that song means to them that they're not really listening to the singer from that point of view. So I do think genre has a, a major part to play. And I would say that probably in musical theatre, it's the same. People are used to going and seeing these shows and they may have seen them several times or they may have heard the musical before, you know, on a recording. And so they have an expectation mm. and they're there for the performance side in terms of technical aspects of whether it's the dance or the singing or the acting. Uh, yeah, so that's an interesting question. Mm. Um, I've certainly been shocked when I've gone to uh, rock pop concerts and to see how tolerant people have been of singers who are not singing well. Maybe it's even better once you've had a, a, a glass of fizz or two as well. <laughs> yes. Well, it seems that using pitch apps, props, anything that can kind of involve more than just the ears, as well as using glides can be a good starting point. Yeah, of course, there are many more ways of getting into helping people become more pitch orientated. They're just a few starting points. I'm sure that, you know, if you check out on YouTube, you'll find some other tips. Um, the thing is really at the end of the day, you want your student to feel encouraged to come back for another lesson. So maybe it's a bit of fun, maybe it's reassurance, uh, also just educating them to re realizing that sometimes these things take a little bit of work and time and practice, um, but it'll be well worth it because they'll be able to sing a song and enjoy singing. So we'll also, actually, there's other resources which I'd love to share, which we haven't had time for, which I'm going to pop into the, uh, into the description. Amazing. Well, Lynn, thank you so much. I hope your Christmas holidays are full of festive cheer and lots of pitch accurate singing. Well, thank you very much, Alexa. And I shall try and take a better attitude towards singing carols as well. <laughs> yes, do. You'll have a jolly time and I'll be there crying over Fairytale of New York. <laughs> <laughs> If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a ahem, five star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click write a review.